Uh, so we're, we're going to jump right in. We're in James chapter 2 today. Uh, this is a short five-chapter book. It's filled with commands. James is wanting to instruct us how to live out our Christian faith. And what we've seen is that our faith in Jesus is meant to be visible. What that means is God called us to live a certain way, a particular way. When the world looks at us, when it looks at the church, they're seeing a picture of the kingdom of God. When our faith is visible, the kingdom of God is visible in this world. And when the kingdom of God is visible, the world gets a glimpse of the glorious rule of our king, of Jesus. So what that means is that God has saved us so we'd be a light in this world, that, that we are to reveal the love and the grace and the mercy of our King Jesus in all that we do. So when, when the world looks at you, when the world looks at me, when the world looks at a Christian, they're getting a glimpse of our King. And now last week, we, we finished chapter 1, and at the end of chapter 1, James kind of gives us the outline for the rest of the book. He says that he's going to be talking about the bridling of our tongues, the caring for the poor, the practicing of holiness. And now as we begin chapter 2, uh, we're going to be looking at what it means to, to care for the poor. Now remember, our actions are meant to reveal our king. So James is going to call us to love and to treat the poor just as Jesus did when he was here on earth. So when we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus loved the orphan, the widow. He went into the house of the outcasts of society. He went to those who were deemed unclean. He went where no respectable man would go. And so our point for today, what we're going to see is that our love for the poor, it reveals the Gospel and our love for our King. So that's what we're going to see. is as, as we love the poor, it reveals our love for the Gospel and our love for our King. And so, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing, shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not, the rich ones the, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Let me pray. Our Father, Father, we thank you for this text. And Father, I pray that through your spirit that you would give us wisdom today, that, that we would understand it, that we'd be challenged, that we'd be convicted, and that we'd be changed more into the image of your son. Lord, I pray that the truth of what James is communicating today, that our love for the poor reveals the gospel, reveals our love for you, that we would take that message, that we'd, we'd understand it, and that we would deeply desire to love all those whom you have placed around us. Lord, may there be no partiality amongst us as a church and in us individually. 
May we not play this favoritism game. But may we have the heart for others that you have. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So what we see in the very beginning is that partiality is at odds with the Christian faith. James is addressing a problem that seems to be creeping up within the church. In verse 1, James says, uh, show no partiality. He's calling us to not play the favorite game. Now notice uh, the word partiality, it means to receive according to the face. That's the actual, what that is communicated in the Greek. It means to make judgments about other people based upon external appearances. And so by, but the word partiality is plural, and so, so it refers to all kinds of favoritism. So James is going to be addressing any kind of favoritism that we do, something based upon external factors, whether it be dress, color of skin, physical appearance, economics, speech, disabilities, any of those things and more. So we're talking about the poor, and that's, that's where we're zeroing in, but realize that this goes beyond that. Any partiality, favoritism, discrimination that we do as Christians, James is calling us to not uh, to participate in those actions. And now he's going to go on to why. Why is it that we're not to do that? Why is partiality not to be amongst the church? Well, James says it goes against the Christian faith. If you look at the rest of verse 1, he says, As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, this is a very interesting combination of titles. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the scriptures where you have the Lord of glory and next to that, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that doesn't appear anywhere else, and it, therefore it's, we've got to wrestle with what that actually means. But it seems that as we have the Lord Jesus Christ, James is referring to us to see Jesus as our king. And then by referring to him as the Lord of glory, he's also the very full glory of God, the exact radiance and imprint of of God. When we see Jesus, we're seeing the Father. And so he's, he's letting us know, if we're playing this game of partiality, that doesn't fall under the rule of our King, who is the very glory of God. It's at odds with the Christian faith. And in the following verses, James is going to give us three reasons why. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to walk through these reasons. Why is favoritism, partiality, discrimination at odds with the Christian faith? Number one, it's at odds with justice. In verses two through three, James gives a hypothetical situation. He says, imagine two guys walking to your church gathering. One is poor, the other is rich. It's like the beginning of a bad Christian joke, right? But notice that as he talks about these, one is poor, the other is rich, that he's focusing on the externals. He describes the rich man as, as a man with, with many gold rings, with very fine clothing. And then he, he talks about the poor man. Well, he's in shabby clothing. So, so what's the point? He's drawing our attention that the partiality is being determined by their appearances. Their economic status is very evident. We actually don't know how poor and how rich. That doesn't matter. It's based upon appearances. And so what happens? Well, the poor guy is basically told to sit on the floor while the rich man is given this place of honor. And I think we can see that this is hypothetical, but it's pretty close to reality, right? Like even, even in a church like this, like 
we could see something like that happening. There are some of you here, and you know the very sting of discrimination. You know what it's like to be mistreated. You know what it's like to be left out. You know the pain of being seen, and yet at the same time, being invisible. And, at, and then at, we also, I think every one of us, is guilty of playing this game of favoritism, of discrimination. We greet some people, but we just usually just don't have time to greet other people. We go out of our way to help certain people, and yet we always seem to be busy when others need help. There's people at school or at work that we intentionally avoid simply because of how they look. But I think we just, we just need to be frank with ourselves. We need to not act like you know, we're holier than thou. We don't need to play games. We're all guilty. Okay, to, to some level or another, we're all guilty of playing this game. And James is saying it, this creeps into the church at times. And so in verse 4, James gives us the point of this illustration. He says, because you make these distinctions, you become judges with evil thoughts. Now, the word distinctions, uh, it means to be double-minded. It means to be inconsistent. So again, James is bringing us back to to play favoritism is inconsistent with the Christian faith. It's like uh, favoritism and faith is like oil and water. They just don't mix. And when we play favorites based upon externals, James is saying we become a wicked judge who determines his cases based upon appearances of those who come before him. Now just imagine how ludicrous that would be. Can you imagine a judge letting off a murderer simply because he dressed nice? Can you imagine being convicted of a crime because you didn't dress as nice as the other guy who actually did the crime? Now, unfortunately, those are probably somewhat realities at times in our own justice system, right? You see, when we discriminate, when we play favorites, we're actually not interested in justice at that time. We're not interested in doing what is right. We're only interested in doing what is best for us. I'll treat this person well because that will benefit me. They can prove my social status. They can make me feel good. And we'll return to this later in the third thought and the third point. But throughout all the Bible, what we see is that God is regularly calling his people to reflect the justice of the kingdom of God. Like, like passages like Matt, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Within the kingdom of God, there is to be justice. We're to look at everyone with fairness, with love, not judging people based upon appearances. So we see that partiality is at odds with justice, but as we go on, we see that partiality is at odds with the gospel. Look at verse 5. James says, listen, my beloved brothers. Now, I know that I say the words, hear, what, what do I say? Hear this, know this. I just want to say there's scriptural support for this. So those of you who are like, you know, mock me and make fun of me for my hear this, know this, James says, listen, another interpretation, hear this, my beloved brother. So I'm just saying, I feel validated, it was inspired here, might not be inspired when I say it, but I do feel like there's scriptural support. So just throwing that out there, hear this, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So all throughout scripture, 
we see that God loves the poor. And we looked at several passages last week, like, like Psalm 68, 5, where, where God, he calls himself, I'm the father of the fatherless. He, he commands his people in the Old Testament to look after the poor, to provide for them. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus served the poor, and he commands us as his church, as his body, to serve them as well. Now, this doesn't mean it's better to be poor than to be rich. It's not that scriptures is saying God's against the rich. It's not saying that we should just give away all of our money, although there is some support at times that God may lead us to get rid of things. But, but if it was actually just to be better to be poor than to be rich, as if we should not have money, we should not have riches, then the scriptures would be very explicit in telling us to give away of all of our things. And we most likely would not be commanded to alleviate and serve the poor if it was better to be poor. So we need to read this rightly. He's not commanding us in, in the sense of this is better to be poor. But he is helping us to see God loves the poor. And he helps the poor. And you see the poor, the widow, the orphan, they're often outcasts of, of society. They're neglected and mistreated. They're often discriminated against. That's what's happening here in this letter. But it's these people that God saves. Now why? Because what we'll see is that our physical poverty is actually an amazing picture of our spiritual poverty before God. And that's really the main point. Is that our physical poverty is a picture of spiritual poverty. So let me just ask you. Why were you saved? Why is it God chose to pour out his grace upon you? you so you would be adopted and you'd be brought in and made a citizen of his kingdom was it because of what you brought to the table was god hoping that man if i bring this person on he's he's going to make our our team look a little better so here in verse five what james is going to do he's going to remind us of the gospel and he does that by by zeroing in on has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. He's, he's talking about the gospel here. He's talking about those whom God saves, those whom God justifies. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read three passages from the New Testament that refer to who we are prior to our salvation. So I, I just want you to think about what this says about you. Not, not about your neighbor, but about you prior to belief in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 29. I think most of these are going to be up on the slide. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God didn't save us because we make him look good. God didn't save us because, God didn't save you and I because of our money, because of our reputation, because of our accomplishment. He saved us because we're weak and we're low. See, I think we like, this is, you know, use a sports analogy, we like to think we're first round draft picks, right? And, and because we're humble, we'll even go back to the fourth round, right? Like I think, man, if I can be chosen 
in the top four rounds, I, I feel pretty good. But is that how the Bible speaks about you and I? Like, we're, we might not be first round, but we're maybe fourth round, fifth round, maybe as far back as seventh, but let's not get much farther. But I think it's better to understand that we're more like the quadriplegic that can't even make it to the field. That's who we are, and yet God chooses us. That's the grace that he has. It's not because of anything that you and I bring. It's not because of any strength, of any accomplishment, of any achievement that you and I are possessing. It is simply an act of grace. So that what we see there in verse 27 or 29, so it says that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Like God doesn't save us so that then we boast in ourselves. He saves us so we say, only by grace we are saved. Because there's nothing of me that is worthy of salvation. Second verse. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. This is talking to a church in Laodicea. John is writing this letter. And he says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your make nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Just pause for a moment. The church that John is writing to thinks they are rich. They look at their clothing they look at their rings on their fingers. They look at their houses. They look at their bank accounts. They look at their morality. And they say, I look pretty good. Like Team Laodicea is not so bad. God's pretty lucky to have us as a church. And Jesus says, it's all a mirage. You're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's just pause for a moment. You see, because of sin, we have a tendency to judge our worth based upon external factors. Our riches can actually make us blind to what our true spiritual condition is. We, we need to realize that. You might be here today, and you think that you're good. You look at your accomplishments, you look at your bank accounts, you look at your morality, and you think, I'm not really that bad. Because I, I think, honestly, if we look at those things, what we normally do is we, we can then find someone who probably doesn't have as many accomplishments, doesn't have as much money, and then we're kind of playing the comparison game. Say, well, I'm better than that person. But according to Scripture, apart from God's grace, he says we're wretched, we're poor, we're blind, we're naked. So I think that forces us to ask, what are we trusting in? Are we trusting in the grace of God or or, and I think because of sin, we, we sometimes revert to trusting in ourselves. Do you see what James is doing here? He's reorienting our thinking according to the gospel. He says the only way we're actually going to understand why favoritism and discrimination is so wrong is when we truly understand the message of the gospel of grace. The gospel reorients us so that we see things the way God sees them. The gospel shows us that because of sin, we all deserve wrath, despite anything we've actually done here on earth. Third text, 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So here Paul says Jesus is rich, and he became poor, so that we who are poor would become rich. See, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God gives grace and mercy in the midst of our poverty. The the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't stay in the throne room. See, Jesus comes in the flesh and he serves us to the point of death. And he holds nothing back. He didn't hold back his love, his grace, his mercy, his, his compassion. All of those are extravagant. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just hang out with those who look like him? He'd stay in the throne room. He never would have come to earth. You see, this is, this is why we serve the poor. This is why we don't play favorites. This is why partiality, discrimination, favoritism, it's at odds with the Christian faith. By extravagantly and intentionally serving the poor, we're showing the extravagant and intentional love of our king. But there's more to the verse. Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't just serve the poor. What does he do according to the verse? He becomes poor. He identifies with the poor. He enters the world in a scandalous birth that probably marked his reputation for the rest of his life. He was, he was hung naked on a cross. He never traveled very far. He had never had many possessions. And when he's hung on the cross, he's hung naked. And he did this so we would be rich. He did this so that we would be given an inheritance in heaven, undefiled, unfading. So listen, we, we serve the poor. When we serve the poor, it's as though we're serving Christ, who became poor for us. If we don't have time for the poor, think about what does that mean? We don't have time for our king. If we tell the poor to sit in a corner, we're telling Jesus to sit in a corner. Do you see how the gospel is shaping everything about how we look at the poor and how we serve and how we treat others? This is why it's so important for us to be in our Bibles. This is why we have men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies to meet during the day and at night and and every other time. This is why it's important for us to be in the Bibles individually, regularly. This is why it's important that we gather as a body at this moment that we'd come under the teaching of God's word because we don't read just to better understand the storyline, although that's good. It's good to know how the story moves. But we're reading so that by faith we grow in our understanding of our God and how he's lavished his grace upon us in Jesus so that we'd be transformed more into the image of Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're reading so that our faith would be visible. Thus, the king would be visible. Thus, the kingdom would be made visible in the way we act. Our love for the poor is a means in which we reveal the gospel to this world. It's a means in which we love our king. This is what, this is what James is doing here as he's exposing the sin of partiality. Number three, it's at odds with the kingdom. Earlier, we said that when our faith is visible, the kingdom of God is visible. And the primary way we reveal the kingdom of God is by our love for one another. All throughout the Old and New Testament, we see that God's people are to be characterized by love. Leviticus 19.18. This is one of those passages that's quoted, uh, I think, most by Christ throughout the entire New Testament. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as 
yourself. I am the Lord. So he gives this verse, he gives this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When we wonder, why do I? Because, because we look at our God who is love, who has loved us, and so now we love one another. Jesus, when he comes into the New Testament, he says in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The evidence of our love for God is that we love one another. And what does that love look like? There's no discrimination. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism. There's no basing our relationship upon externals. And so this is where we come into verse 8 here in James. James says if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're actually fulfilling the royal law. What's he doing by saying the royal law? Well, he's referring back to Jesus, our king. He's referring to the kingdom of God. He's saying that love for one another is the royal law of the kingdom. It's our love for one another that reveals our king. It's our love for one another that reveals the kingdom. When we love one another without partiality, without discrimination, then we're showing the life within the kingdom. But notice in verse 6, you see, because of favoritism, the poor man has been dishonored. Rather than living as a citizen of God's kingdom, we're living like the world. Gospel amnesia has set in, and, and we see that when that happens, we revert back to our old selves. And notice the foolishness of this favoritism. Look at verses 6 and 7. James says, aren't the rich the ones who drag you into courts? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme God? So when we get to chapter 5, we're going to flesh this out a whole lot more. But in chapter 5, what we see is that there's these rich people in the community, and they're oppressing people in the church. The, the rich landowners have hired people within the church to work the land. And then, and then rather than pay them, they've withheld wages from them. So very likely, those within the church, they're thinking, hey man, the rich guy showed up. Let's give him the good seat. Let's make him feel really welcome. Let's give him all the honor. Because, I mean, if we treat him well here, over in the workplace, he'll probably start passing those checks on to us. He'll treat us better. If we honor him, scratch his back, surely he'll scratch our back. So the church is overlooking gross sins, compromising the testimony of the gospel, all so that it would be more comfortable. You see, partiality is not about loving others. It's about loving ourselves. Partiality is about advancing our kingdom. But we've been saved that we'd be citizens of God's kingdom. So it's foolish to live for any kingdom other than God's. Just as the waves of an ocean, you've seen this. You go out to the Pacific, you build a sandcastle, the waves in, come in, tide comes in. What happens to that sandcastle? It's washed away. That's exactly what happens to all the kingdoms of this world. All the kingdoms of this world will simply be washed away, and only the kingdom of God is going to be left. And, and what we see as we get to the, the second part of James, uh, chapter 2, which, which we'll look at uh, in a couple weeks, we'll see that the church is called to care for those within the church. So when we're hurting, we don't need to manipulate those outside the church. We serve one another. We share our resources. We see that in the book of Acts, where they share all that they had so that no one would have need. 
In the beginning, I said the main point is our love for the poor reveals the gospel and our love for our king. I want to take a moment. I know that, I know there's some here, uh, some here like, like Jim and Nancy and, and Mary, and they serve the poor every single week. They're involved in the great ministry where, where they're just, they're, they're not even just up to their knees, they're up to their waist and their elbows and everywhere else, and they're, they're serving the poor. It's amazing. I know there's others of you out here who you're regularly working with, with those who are poor in our society, and that's incredible. But, but one thing for us to see is that the poor here in James is not to be limited to the homeless. We'd be actually wrong to limit it to that. Because when we get to chapter 5, what we see is these, these poor are not homeless. They have jobs. They're working. The problem is that they're being mistreated, and now they have great needs. And so James is not so interested in defining the poor by their level of income, but by their appearances. James is warning us about treating people differently based upon external factors. The poor could be those who are disabled, the, a minority race, the homeless, orphans, widows, those who live just above or just below the poverty level. The point is, is that as the church, we're called to love them. Within the church, there's no favoritism. When the church, it doesn't matter how we're dressed, we're going to give you the place of honor no matter what. According to the gospel, because of our sin, we are all counted poor, blind, and naked. That's what we saw in that Revelation 3. And it's precisely at this point that we're, we're spiritually bankrupt, that Jesus comes to love us and to serve us, and now we have the privilege of loving and serving others, the poor. So when we serve those who are on the fringes of society, when we serve those who others look down upon, we're actually revealing the gospel. Do you know that? You're revealing the heart of the gospel. Now, you're not revealing the message of the gospel we covered that last week no one gets saved by your actions right i'm not going to repeat all that we did last week no one gets saved by you feeding the homeless we should feed the homeless because that reveals the love of the kingdom but what people need to hear is that jesus christ the son of god left heaven came to earth died on a cross because you and i are sinful and the only way that we have forgiveness is through the death and resurrection of jesus christ your good works don't communicate that our good works reveal the love of the god who gave the gospel but it doesn't reveal the actual message of the gospel right we're clear i feel like i'm going back over all last week which i just told you i'm not going to do so we'll move on but our acts of kindness is this microcosm of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. When we serve others, we're revealing the king. We're revealing the kingdom to this world. Now, my prayer throughout this letter is that God would challenge, convict, and change. And it just happened those are all three C's. That he would challenge us, convict us, and change us. And I have to say, like, as I've studied this passage, I mean, I've been greatly convicted. Like wrestling through with how have I been intentionally, how have I extravagantly been loving and serving those who are poor, those on the, on the fringes? And there's ways I can say, okay, I do that here, but I, I don't do that well. I, I don't do that always intentionally. I think there's a lot of times I've made excuses for why I'm not helping or doing other things at times. Uh, and so I come before you even, and I just ask for your forgiveness as, as one who's leading here, saying, I, I don't think I've done this very well. 
I think there's, as, as I read this text and I, I'm wrestling with the truths of, I'm convicted. I'm going, man, I, I think I have holes in just the way that I've been living in that. And so I want to bring that to you, asking for your forgiveness there as I, as I try to shepherd here and try to shepherd my own family. But I want to bring that back to you also. And I say, is God challenging and convicting your heart? I mean, like, who are you serving? How are you serving? Are you intentional? Are you extravagant? Are you distancing yourselves from anyone in particular? Are there people at work or at school you just avoid? Are there people on, on the sports teams that you just kind of, he's not very good. I don't hang out with him. And sometimes I do participate in the gossip about him. I think what we do is we hide behind excuses a lot. Excuses like, if, if we're referring to the homeless, well, they're reaping what they've sown. And we just generalize all of them. I think we'll say, I, I don't have money with me. You know, and, and in this day and age, man, I, I usually only have plastic. I, my kids have taken all my money. I have quarters, dimes, and nickels, and usually those are absent too. Uh, but 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 I'll, I'll say I, I don't have any money. I, I surely can't help that guy. I, I got nothing to give him. Or, or I'll say I, I don't have time. But but then if we if we're honest and we kind of look back on ourselves, do we do we plan for it though? Are we intentional? Do we do we just keep some money in the car? Do we keep some money in our wallet for that purpose? Not. Not to indulge our other, you know, Dairy Queen fantasies. You know, we're like, oh, I got five bucks. I might as well go get the blizzard. But, but actually, we just keep five bucks for, hey, the next time that I'm somewhere and there's a need, or maybe it's 20 bucks, or maybe whatever it is, and I'm just going to keep that money. And that's, that's me being intentional. And that's now me actually going to budget to meet whatever needs God begins to place around me. Or we say, well, I just don't have time. I mean, i got to get home for dinner. They can't eat without me. You know, but it, it's things like that, like, why don't we have time? Are we never having time? Are we, are we that busy? And of course, I know we live in this society where we say we're busy, and, and I say that a lot, but if we're not careful, we use that for excuses for just doing the things we want to. And God has no place to interfere with our schedules. And I say this all to you. These are things I'm wrestling with. This is, this is how I'm wrestling this week. And, and as I'm in this text going, man, where am I at here? And so basically I think what it comes down to is, is that we see if we're going to serve the poor, and remember the poor is much bigger than just economic status. Those who are on the fringes, orphans, widows, economic disabilities, uh, physical disabilities, so many other things. We're going to have to be intentional, and that's going to mean there's going to be a cost. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us our comforts. It's going to cost us our convenience. But isn't that the gospel? Like, just think through it. Isn't that the gospel? Like, Jesus left heaven. Like, if we want to say we only do what's comfortable, then there shouldn't be a gospel because Jesus should never have left heaven because the throne room was far more comfortable than the cross. Right? But we love the gospel. We boast in the gospel. And now we have a very beautiful and humble way of demonstrating the gospel in our everyday lives. And it's by not playing the game of partiality. It's by looking at others and saying, how do I love them? 
How do I not let externals dictate who I serve, who I hang out with? But I'm going to hang out with the guy at school who no one else hangs out with. I'm going to invite him over to my house. I'm going to invite the guy at work who's awkward. We all know who that guy is, right? The guy who has no social abilities and like, all right. And frankly, there's probably some of you who are like that, right? Probably more of us are like that than we like to admit. But what, what, what God has just helped me to see in this passage, going through chapter 2, is that the entire gospel is about God coming and serving the poor at great cost. He was intentional and he was extravagant. And, and what gets in the way of that for us is partiality, external things. And so we, we're forced to look inside and saying, how is that happening? Am I doing that? How am I serving the poor? How am I being intentional and extravagant? Because that is a very beautiful means in which we get to display the grace, the mercy, and the compassion of our king. So if we say we want to boast in the gospel, that means we serve the poor. You don't boast in the gospel with your words and not your actions. And so I just, I just ask you just to pray. What's God doing in your heart? Is there conviction is there challenging? Is there change taking place? Um, wrestle with that. And the, and the neat thing is, is that, is that I know as a church, like, like Ben has testified of it when he was up here, um, everyone that joins our church basically communicates, man, as a church, we're, we're a pretty loving church. And that is a wonderful just act of grace that God has given us. Like I truly do believe that, that as a church, you love one another. And I think, I think largely for what's happening here, I think God just wants to take us deeper in that. Probably, probably expose a few sins there, but take us deeper into our love for one another, deeper into our love for those outside the church. Because I think, overall, God has blessed us in an amazing way with the way we do love one another. There truly is just a sense of unity here within the Spirit, and that is amazing. But we can't then say, like, check, I got that, you know. Let's look at the next thing. But, but God's wanting to take us deeper into our love for the gospel, that we would love one another at even a deeper level, communicating the truths of the gospel to them regularly. Um, so I, I want to close in, in prayer. But before I begin praying, I just want to give you a few moments uh, just to pray. Confess. Any, anything. Whatever it is God's leading you. You might even want to write that down in the bulletin. That's why we have space there uh, on the bulletin. Uh, so I encourage you, just, just think through. Just write whatever it is that God lays on your heart. And just pray. And then I'm going to close this. And then we're going to take communion. And I think it's great that we're taking communion today. Because what is communion? It's a, it reveals the intentional extravagant love of God. That Jesus came in the flesh, which is the bread. He died on the cross, which is, represents the blood that he gave his life for us that we would have everlasting life. So we're going to come in a special way to remember the intentional extravagant love of the gospel. Let's pray.